Hello and welcome to the Limbic Podcast. I'm Sonali Silva. Thanks so much for joining me. My guests today are Associate Professor Natasha Smallwood, Respiratory Physician at the Alfred and Royal Melbourne Hospitals. She's also Principal Research Fellow at Monash University. Joining me as well is Professor Karen Willis from the Royal Melbourne Hospitals Division of Critical Care and Investigative Services. Natasha and Karen are leading the Australian Frontline Healthcare Workers Study. It's a study that explores the social work and mental health effects experienced by healthcare workers during the COVID-19 pandemic. The survey was distributed nationally in September last year at the height of Victoria's COVID-19 second wave and amid nearly four months of strict lockdown. It was met with a phenomenal response. More than 10,000 healthcare workers completed the survey and it's provided profound insights into the effects of the pandemic on the healthcare system. Natasha, Karen, welcome. Thanks so much for joining me. Good morning, Sonali. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, you've both been busy analysing a prolific amount of data. There's a huge body of work soon to be published with a lot of implications here for healthcare reform. Natasha, tell us what was happening in Melbourne in your hospital when you first thought about putting this study together? So I suppose, Sonali, as a respiratory physician, as a frontliner who's also married to another frontliner, I was acutely aware at the start of the pandemic of the change that was occurring around me. You know, in March, when things started happening um, in Australia and we started to worry a bit about what was going to happen, what would our caseload be? How would we respond? It was a really quite frightening experience. And I think that was the experience for everybody around the world at the start of the pandemic. But it also meant a lot of change, you know, because we didn't know what to expect. We really didn't know how to deliver healthcare. So initially we were you know, trying to cancel some of our clinics and then we were changing our clinics, rapidly adopting telehealth. We had a lot of information being given to us, a lot of misinformation, a lot of change so much communication and I think people universally experience that information overload so much communication so much change you know um, even around things like PPE things that we just weren't used to doing there was just this immense change that all of us experienced and for me as a frontliner I could see the effect that had on myself but also on my family on my colleagues both my colleagues, you know, in Melbourne and around Australia, but also my my colleagues back home in the UK, I could see the profound effect that this had. And so I really felt quite strongly, actually, that because we were the people experiencing this, and, and our experiences are quite different to the general population, that if this was going to be studied, it needed to be studied by frontliners, for frontliners, because we understood those experiences ourselves. And because I also hold um, an academic appointment and um, a lot of my research in severe lung disease has involved quantitative methodology and surveys, I sort of kind of felt that I was actually quite well placed to do this piece of research. And I'd been collaborating with Karen, who's a qualitative researcher for some time, and I called her one morning and said, I think we need to do this. We really need to lead it. And from there, we put together just an incredible um, chief investigator team of respiratory physicians, um, ICU doctors, ED doctors, this really broad group of clinicians together with academics to lead a really powerful study, understanding nationally what those effects were. And, you know, it takes time to develop ethics to get everything ready. And by the time we had everything ready, I actually just really aligned with the second wave of the pandemic in Melbourne so that when that hit, we were just ready to go with a really a good survey instrument and everybody wanted to share. That's what was extraordinary. Everybody wanted to take part in this research. So from having an idea in sort of March 
around, gosh, this is really overwhelming and distress, we, distressing, we need to do something about it. We were just actually really well placed as that second wave hit in July, August to actually say, right, we're ready to go. We can do this study and we can do it really well. And that's something I really marvel at, Natasha, particularly because you were healthcare workers operating right in the thick of things yourselves at the time. And I imagine that's a really unique place to be in in terms of designing the study. What kinds of things did you want to look at when you were formulating the survey questions? Well, quite a lot, actually. So, you know, as part of that, um, preparing the study, we did a lot of due diligence to see what people were looking at elsewhere. And obviously that was important because many other countries experienced a lot more COVID than Australia did, particularly at the start of the pandemic, but also actually going um, throughout the last year or so. So we could actually see what was being done internationally. For us, we wanted to know about, um, you know, what people's experiences of mental health problems had been prior to the pandemic. So we asked a few questions around that. We asked around social disruption and change. So particularly around what people had experienced with suddenly having to do homeschooling, um, you know, changes in work practice, we asked a bit about um, you know, people's work experiences, what the disruptions had been at work, what the communication was like at work. But we also wanted to understand very clearly around what were the mental health effects of this. And so we asked people to self-report, but we also included five very um, well-validated psychological scales, which were also being used in surveys overseas, which for us was quite important so we could have that comparative data. And one of the things that we wanted to find really, not only was the prevalence and severity of mental health issues, but actually what were the predictors for those so that in future, who do you both, who do you most need to protect during a crisis? Who is most vulnerable to these effects? And you included a free text section in there as well, didn't you? We did. I mean, it's always, it's so difficult when you design a survey because there are so many things you want to ask and you're balancing that against irritating the respondent by making it too long. And generally, um, the surveys I've designed, I've always actually tried to keep free text to a minimum because nobody ever replies to them. You generally find that people, you know, just go past it because they're not interested. They don't have time. So we actually only wrote a few in uh, because we didn't want to annoy people and burden them. And what astounded us was the phenomenal response that we got back to that. And Karen can talk much more to that than I can. But we are talking we've got well over 20,000 free text responses, which is so incredible that people shared with us, but also so challenging to analyze because of they're not one line free text responses, they're half a page where people put their soul on the page and told us what they really thought. So we've got this really rich data with quantitative data, but actually some incredibly strong qualitative data describing people's experiences. Natasha, we've spoken before of the significance of what's been shared in those free text responses. And you said something that has stuck with me, and that was that you feel like you're the custodian of these stories, and there's a responsibility now to tell them. Absolutely. Um, and yes, just to speak to that point of being a custodian, it, Karen and I are both incredibly privileged to lead this study and have this data set and feel an immense responsibility to share what people gave to us because they shared so much in depth about their lives. So it really is um, an honor, but also quite a lot of work to uh, to own something like this and, and to need to share those responses. And this is information from across many areas of healthcare. Tell us which groups responded. So we, we to our knowledge, we've just run the largest multi-professional study on this topic globally, because we've got every group represented. Um, we've got doctors, nurses, allied health, we've got administration staff, we've got um, food preparation staff, we've got all the, the, the range of people who work in community care. 
that is really quite unique because most of these studies when they've been done have actually focused on quite small um, sets and have actually focused on the hospital system. So really fascinating just actually to get that breadth of, of responses. Natasha, you looked at the effect of the pandemic on the mental health of healthcare workers. What does the analysis of the data reveal so far? In terms of of mental health, what we saw was actually quite frightening statistics. So in actual fact, about 30% of them reported having a pre-existing mental health condition, which is actually quite consistent with the literature of um, where this is being studied. But to my mind, still, that's a little um, frightening to think that a third of people who are healthcare workers actually have um, a mental health condition. In our study, we found that about 60% of people had anxiety symptoms, 70% had emotional exhaustion, so burnout, and 57% had depression, and 41% had post-traumatic stress disorder. And these are not self-reported symptoms. These are as measured on validated psychological scales. Okay, so this is quite objectively defined that they have this. I mean, those are astonishing rates of um, mental health symptoms that people were experiencing in the second wave of the pandemic. And I think what we need to bear in mind with that is the second wave in Australia was was big for us, but it wasn't big compared to international standards. You know, we've only had sort of 20,000 cases, so our caseload was not massive, and yet we saw such profound psychological symptoms. We also found this despite the fact that this was an extremely resilient group. So their resilience score was well over three on a scale that was measured out of four. So this was an extremely resilient group. And yet we saw these immense psychological symptoms and distress that people were reporting. And a couple of other things that were just astonishing were people talking about being worried about being blamed by colleagues if they got infected, which is really sad, really distressing, but also that so many of them were terrified of transmitting this infection to their family. So it wasn't just about personal risk. It was around, what does it mean? I'm a frontline worker. You know, my job is to protect others, but not at the expense of my family. So some really interesting findings. Karen, I'd like to bring you in now. You're working with that very robust experiential data. What picture is emerging from amongst these stories? Are you starting to see common threads? Thanks, Sonali. Yes, as Natasha said, we had an astounding response to um, to the free text, the four free text questions that we asked. Um, for questions one to three, which were around the strategies that um, would have helped them um, with mental health issues, the challenges that they experienced and what they wanted their workplace to do. We had between five and 6,000 responses um, for each of those. And then in the last free text question, which was, is there anything else you wanna tell us? We had about 2,000. So it is an amazing set of data. And every time I go in to do some analytical work on it, I am quite overwhelmed with the stories, how much people actually wanted to tell us. But the overwhelming theme that comes through is that the issues that arose for health workers are workplace issues. So the mental health issues, the issues that they face with um, the the work-life balance, as well as the response in the workplace, are all about workplaces. And the key finding from that data is that the pandemic really shone a light on pre-existing workforce issues that we have to address. So these, they became exacerbated during, during the pandemic, but people reflected on the fact that 
um, many were pre-existing issues. And the second was that the pandemic was pervasive. It affected every aspect of people's life. And I think Natasha's already alluded to that. Work and home life became increasingly blurred. People worried about the risk to themselves and their families, the effect of burnout and anxiety at both work and at home. And then third, and I want to spend a little bit of time on this, is actually what the mental health impacts meant for them during the pandemics, during the pandemic. So in terms of the workplace issues, I think the words of one senior um, female medical staff member just put this really succinctly. Um, and when she said, workload went up, not down, and pre-COVID-19, it was already excessive. And this is discussed in more detail by an allied health clinician who was working in an emergency department when she says that the challenges of the pandemic were dealing with the increased workload without any support from the hospital. It puts a lot of stress on my physical, mental and emotional health. We have exactly the same resources as we did pre-COVID, not having breaks and having to work seven to, day, seven to 10 days straight and also the increased frequency of working shifts and night shifts. The system was already underfunded COVID-19 just amplified the cracks in the system. I often came home feeling defeated and too tired to take care of my own physical and mental health. And it, within all this uh, context, what as Natasha talked about, there was this massive workforce change, like things were changing very rapidly. And this came out a lot in, in people's responses. So a, um, a nurse from emergency department says, every single day, there's something new to take on board. And another, another nurse says, coming to work and not knowing where the policy will be different. To yesterday and these were challenges that they were facing as they were going through the second wave and the fact that this constant change has implications for mental health was also frequently discussed so a social worker uh, talks about trying to keep up with the constant and fast-paced change has led to mental exhaustion trying to respond to new measures and situations and make decisions about everything is very tiring. And so it's kind of like this cumulative effect of just constant, constant change. And one um, junior medical staff member in, um, in an emergency department actually links all of this together when she says that every, it feels like every shift is unpredictable. And then in response, to question four when adding, is there anything else that you want to tell us? She says, I love my work and it's very rewarding, but it's also absolutely exhausting, both emotionally and physically. The physical act impacts of PPE, such as skin issues from masks, are also troubling. And Karen, it's really heartbreaking, as you say, many of the issues highlighted by the survey have been plaguing the system for a long time um, and compounded by the pandemic. What was the effect of that on the way people viewed their ability to keep getting up every day and doing their job? So throughout the data, as I mentioned, we find examples of people who made decisions about leaving their profession or considered doing so. And of course, this has real implications for the sustainability of a highly skilled and highly educated workforce. And respondents were really eager to tell us that they weren't taking these decisions lightly and that they were, but they were inextricably linked with the work conditions they experienced. Um, so this uh, female nurse in, emer in emergency said, I stopped working in March due to concerns with infection control and my partner is in a high-risk high group. My view is not enough has been done to ensure adequate and appropriate PPE for all healthcare workers. 
I also believe that increased staffing in the way of floating staff should have been introduced and all efforts taken to reduce healthcare workers working across sites. Because of these concerns, which is not exhaustive, but these were the main ones, I chose to cease casual work in direct patient care. And she goes on to say, and I think the use of language is interesting because it comes out again and again, is this, this notion of guilt. She says, I felt guilty about ceasing work as a clinical emergency nurse initially, but felt that I had a greater responsibility to my family to keep myself and them safe. Uh, one junior medical staff member talks about the fact that we are all just exhausted. I was burnt out pre-pandemic and now feel so guilty about wanting to leave medicine and will stay because I feel I need to, not because it's best for me. That, that struggle re really comes out in the mental health concerns that people have and people use words over and over again, such as exhaustion, being drained, uh, not not feeling on top of things. They talked about the challenges of being things like um, isolation from their family and friends and how that actually affected their mental health. So one nurse says, it drains us nurses physically and emotionally. We cannot even take a break from work and you'll notice that everyone is stressed. And for some people, interestingly, they this was the first time they actually uh, recognise that they may have some mental health fragility. So um, a senior medical staff in a surgical ward says, I feel for the first time ever that I have mental health fragility. Even recognising that, I find stressful. A nurse in palliative care says, COVID-19 has impacted my wellbeing for the first time in my career in palliative care. I hadn't realised how much until I took a step back and talked with other health professionals about how I was feeling. Just really striking um, how many people are dealing with a lot of confronting thoughts about their own health while trying to continue to care for others. Karen, there was a powerful quote that you wanted to share that reflects so many of the experiences people have relayed through this survey. So this is a response from a senior medical staff who's a geriatric geriatrician working in aged care. She talks about um, during COVID experiencing anxiety, depression and burnout. She sought Unlike a lot of our respondents, she sought assistance from um, the Employment Assistance Program. But her response to question four about telling, you know, is there anything else you want to tell us is really quite heartbreaking. She says, I have cried every day for two months since the nursing home outbreaks have begun. I've been unable to speak with family or friends about my work without crying. I have not been able to talk to other doctors as they have not experienced the same things I have. Because of all of this, I have not spoken to my friends for two months. For the first time in two months, I spoke to two friends last week. Otherwise, I've isolated myself. My children have become extremely distressed and anxious because of my emotional distress and because of my enormous workload. I've worked as a medical registrar while studying for the physician exams. I've locumed and work in rural placements with minimal support from consultants, i.e. I have worked hard and with minimal support over my career as a doctor, but I have never worked this hard or experienced this degree of stress or emotional toll from the work I've been doing during the last two months. During the height of the pandemic, I had hoped I would get COVID so I would not have to come to work. And that is, though, I mean, this is a very powerful quote, but feelings like that are represented through, throughout the data. 
Karen, that's a very honest and vulnerable account shared by a senior doctor, and it shows how deeply felt the impacts of COVID-19 became. I want to contrast that to junior doctors and frontline workers just entering the profession. What does the survey tell us about how they've been impacted? So there were, as there were impacts across the full spectrum of career stage as well as by occupation. And the next two quotes that I want to give you are from two junior medical staff. And one is a, a, a female junior medical staff who describes experiencing depression but also seeking professional help during the pandemic. And she says, I went through pregnancy and delivery during lockdown. Lack of support is very stressful. I know many trainees are in similar positions currently or worrying about how they will look after small babies or be able to safely return to work if there's still a COVID outbreak after mat leave. Also, I have several close friends who between the social isolation of living alone in a lockdown and the exams they studied for 12 months, putting their life on hold, including putting off having kids, who have had significant mental health issues requiring psychiatric treatment, medication and hospitalisation. And another junior medical staff member, also a female, talks about experiencing anxiety and burnout, they, that she'd used a range of strategies, uh, sought professional help, exercise, had used a mental health app, but also had increased her alcohol use. Um, and she says what would really help her would be some flexibility and agency at work. It's very difficult to manage fatigue and burnout, burnout with the junior medical system rostering. You can take a sick day, but you can't cut back your hours on an ongoing basis. Um, and she goes on to say, it's all good and well to say, meditate, do yoga, call the employee assistance program. But if there's no ability for you to self-manage your work, which is the main source of stress, I don't see that the other things can fix that. And Karen, there was a real impact too on mental health as a result of the responsibility senior clinicians felt towards protecting junior staff. What experiences came across there? If we look at um, senior medical staff, I think we get not only the similar, similar kinds of um, workplace issues, but we also see a willing, you know, that they are actually really wanting to address what's going on. And, but they're also experiencing emotional cost themselves. So um, the next quotes that I want to give you are from a senior medical staff member, a male in emergency who, who um, indicated that he suffered anxiety since the pandemic and sought professional help, and, but also did some self-care um, strategies. But what he said was, that while he felt that that helped him personally, the challenge for him in the pandemic was holding the fear and anger of all my staff alongside managing my own fears for their safety, fears that we would be unable to provide basic care to people, fear of finishing it all with PTSD, long hours and constant change. He goes on to say that the pandemic has bound together our department it has also meant fabulous collaborations around the hospital. It has caused me to lift in my role and really develop my leadership. In many ways, it has been a wonderful thing to be part of and given that, given that it had to happen. I'm glad to have had this chance to serve the community at such an important time, but I'm tired and I'm sad and I miss the joyful life I led before it came. So I think we really see there the struggle that people, um, do want to be of service and do want to help but of course there is a cost there 
And a senior medical staff member in intensive care also uh, indicated that she'd experienced anxiety since the pandemic um, and had some self-care strategies around exercise and being kind to herself to address that. But what she identified was that there needs to be really specific funding for psychological support for healthcare worker stress um, and other mental health issues. I would like more as I'm in a leadership role and the welfare of my staff weighs heavily on me. I would like more tools to support my staff. And she goes on to say, I'm concerned if we don't have a lot of ongoing, genuine professional psychological support, we're going to see a lot of burnout and healthcare workers leaving the profession. So there's a real sense of grieving the loss of the job and life outside it as it once was. Karen, these voices are really pleading for change and in amongst the stories, people gave you a lot of information about the strategies and initiatives that departments started rolling out that worked and those that didn't. What were the findings there? In some workplaces, strategies were implemented to um, to support staff, but usually when people talked about those, they actually talked about the fact that they were bottom-up strategies and that they didn't really feel strongly supported by the management um, in uh, whichever institution they were in. So this... Um, quote from uh, someone in a in ED says our staff in ED were at the forefront of welfare checking for staff within the department they set up a system of check-ins and welfare deliveries etc they didn't rely on management for doing this all the emails in the world about employers employee assistance programs weren't as useful as reaching out with human contact by phone or doorstop deliveries to tell people we were thinking about them in their quarantine And I've just got one more quote that I'd like to read to you. And this really highlights the most important, what I think is the the most important finding in this study, that it's a workplace issue that requires structural change, not a focus on individuals to fix their own mental problems, their, their own mental health problems. And this person says, I really think the most important thing is how Australia manages the COVID-19 pandemic and what our employers' attitude to occupational health and safety is. Everything else, all the individual level interventions like yoga apps are chicken feed in comparison. There is a big risk that focusing on the individual level strategies lets governments and employers off the hook and frames any distress as the worker's fault. Please, please ensure that in your write-up of your work, you frame any individual level recommendations in this way. Natasha, perhaps I can bring you in here. You're looking at the qualitative data. What's emerging as predictors for worse mental health outcomes during a pandemic? Have you been able to identify vulnerable groups that we can then divert resources to that might reduce that risk? Yeah, absolutely, such a good question. One of the the great things about the study was the size. And so we actually had the power to work out what the individual predictors are. And so some of the studies that have been done on this topic overseas, Um, were much smaller and so they couldn't um, unpick what was a predictor or whether it was confounded by another relationship. So for example, overseas, a lot of studies found that nurses were more vulnerable to mental health problems, but but they could also see that women were more vulnerable. But of course, women are often nurses and allied health professionals are often female. So what they couldn't discriminate was, is it the fact that you're a woman or is it the fact that you're a nurse that is this predictor? But because we have a very large study, it meant that we could do some quite complex statistics to pick them all apart and say, this is an individual risk factor, this is an independent risk factor. So what comes out quite clearly is women are much more at risk 
of um, experiencing mental health problems. And interestingly in our data, that was not uh, associated with actually having an increased caring responsibility. So it's then an interesting question of why do women, why are women more vulnerable? And while we asked about increased um, paid and unpaid hours at work, what we didn't ask and what I, you know, we would like to know more about in our next phase of research was actually what was their increased unpaid workload at home? Because that's probably what drove this, that they took on a lot more burden, both psychologically for the support of the family, the extended family, but also um, there is some work from overseas, particularly actually from the UK, that found that women took on an additional 11 hours a week of home duties in addition to working full time. And that's not something that we specifically asked about. And if I had my time again, I would ask that question, but you can't know all these things a priori. But I think that's probably the explanation. It is the increased burden that these women take on um, mentally and physically. And that's what drives them, them, them to be more vulnerable to the psychological effects of the pandemic. As well as finding that women are more at risk, we also found that certain um, health professional groups are more at risk. So nurses are more at risk, allied health workers are more at risk compared to doctors. And again, what we think it drives that is the fact that many of them are in very hierarchical roles. So they have less control about where they work. If you work on a ward, you go to work, you do your job. Whereas doctors often have a lot more flexibility and control, we're much more autonomous. And we certainly picked that in the free text that people you know, felt hierarchically trapped. And, and again, that comes out with junior doctors. They felt they had no control. I mean, the pandemic was disrupting their life in every, um, in every facet, but they also had no control at work. And that was very stressful to them. So certain groups were, were much more at risk. The people who were younger were much more at risk. Again, not really a surprise, much less experienced. Um, much less you know, experience of dealing with crises generally. So therefore we're much more vulnerable to these um, types of problems as of course with people with a pre-existing mental health condition, which kind of makes sense. So we could find some very clear um, personal risk factors. In terms of the frontline, um, you know, the workplace risk factors, what was, was quite interesting was we did see a bit of a difference about people who worked in the emergency department compared to the ICU, compared to primary care. So we, we did see a bit of a difference, principally in that actually people who worked in the, in the emergency department, the ED, were more likely to experience um, depersonalization. And I guess that kind of makes sense, right? Because you kind of have to separate yourself from what can be quite overwhelming. Otherwise, it's a, you know, it's a protective factor, but we saw that come out quite significantly. And that's often recognized in that group anyway, but also in men. And, you know, we could see that people um, who were more worried about um, being blamed by their colleagues um, and people who were working with COVID-19 patients were more likely to experience mental health problems. So again, kind of all these predictors make sense, but they're absolutely important because if you know the predictors in one crisis, then you can identify these people in future crises and develop targeted interventions. You know who you have to go for to protect. And as we've sort of articulated, people did not use the supports that were available. I mean, a lot of healthcare organizations have ramped up the supports that they had available. Uh, I know, you know, not just in Australia, I know the UK's had mental health hubs, but you know, certainly our experience here has been that people don't use them. And, and yet they do recognize they've got a problem. They self-reported, it's not lack of insight. They, they 
very clear correlation with self-reporting and the psychological scales. So it's not a failure to recognize they've got problems. It is an unwillingness to utilize these. And I know a lot of um, uh, healthcare organization governments have invested in apps and what we could, you know, some of these shorter term uh, solutions. But interestingly, what comes out in our data is not many people used an app, only about 14%. So again, it highlights, you know, if we've got predictors of who's going to be vulnerable, we need long lasting, really powerful interventions. They're not the group that you then say, here's your app. That's, that's not what we're suggesting. We're saying that for this group, they really need to be targeted with more interventions that are perhaps more individualized, more personalized, so that they feel willing to accept the support that's offered for their mental health condition. And, you know, I'm being a bit vague, but, you know, we've, we've got a fair idea of what those interventions are because people have given us some of those solutions, but this is that next phase of research that we actually need to test those solutions. Really, you know, we've got ideas, but we need to co-design them, but actually, more importantly, they need to be tested and then actually into, um, introduce evidence-based interventions because a lot of money can be spent on a quick fix solution, but if nobody uses it, it's a waste of time. So we need evidence-based solutions that healthcare workers want, will accept and will utilize in this crisis and future crises. And what does the qualitative data reveal about leadership in a crisis? Are there predictors of good and bad outcomes? I think leadership is, is challenging. I mean, when we look at both the quantitative and the, the qualitative results, there are good examples and bad examples. Obviously, in this type of survey, certainly a lot more of the responses we've had have been negative, particularly some of the free text has given us some very clear examples of leadership or communication failure. But actually, some of the quantitative stuff says, well, it's not so bad. They didn't do so bad. I think that's because we're actually inherently a little kind and um, recognize that our leaders struggled as much as you know the average worker. But we can clearly see that people needed to do better. And in fact, Karen gave that lovely quote from a leader who said, I didn't know how to do it. You know, so there's clearly the leaders themselves were not necessarily prepared. None of us were prepared for a crisis of this scale. I suppose it's important to contextualize in Australia, particularly in Melbourne, the crisis hit just after we'd gone through some extraordinary bushfires. You know, we'd already responded to one crisis, you know, literally putting fires out. You know, it took a huge toll on us um, as a healthcare workforce because of the, um, the smoke effects and the smoke inhalation and the pollution. And as a respiratory physician, I seem to have spent most of that time dealing with those, those patients with, with breathlessness and smoke affecting their breathing. We went literally from that to the next day to a crisis of a pandemic, you know, and pandemics and crisis preparedness, crisis preparedness has been around bushfires and smaller scale stuff. And actually it brings a pandemic so disruptive on this scale to highlight, you know, we're just not prepared. We, we've never been prepared enough. And even where there was preparedness, perhaps those plans weren't actually followed because this was so catastrophic. And one of the things that Karen and I have discussed a lot is, you know, crises are not isolated events. We went from a bushfire to a pandemic. They actually occur all the time. There's just been flooding up in New South Wales of catastrophic proportions. You know, climate change is going to keep bringing crises at our door very frequently. We need to be better prepared for this at all levels, you know, government leadership, the leadership, the may, you know, the overarching leadership of major um, hospitals and primary care. We need leadership responses that occur throughout that spectrum of leadership, but that, you know, really do support those frontline workers because this will keep 
maybe not to this degree, we may, let's hope we don't have another pandemic like this for another 100 or 200 years, but we will keep having crises and we need to be better prepared to future-proof our workforce. So Natasha, there's a wealth of information you're working with now. What's next? Where do you go from here? So I suppose, I mean, where we're at at the moment is we're, we're deeply grateful to everyone who's given us their responses. It's interesting because everybody thanked us. At the end of the survey, we, we usually got a thank you very much for doing this work. We're deeply grateful to them. Um, where we're at at the moment is trying to get all of this information published and disseminated. And we've just been applying for more grants to do this next phase of research, which is around co-designing the solutions. We've got a fair idea what they are, but actually take them back to that healthcare worker uh, group and say, okay, you know, let's let's refine it, let's let's develop it, and then actually test it. And when we talk about testing, we're talking about testing in small environments. So testing in sort of intensive care unit or in testing in an um, testing an intervention in a small department, like an emergency department. I mean, they're not small, they've got 300 people in them, but they're great places to do pilot studies before you roll something out to a whole hospital of 10,000 people or whatever. So that's kind of the next phase of research, which we would really sort of waiting to hear on a couple of grants, but it would be fabulous to actually be able to be doing that within the next six months. Natasha, there are many implications and opportunities now for real change that could happen as a result of this work. Did you both anticipate when you started out that you'd be here now looking at co-designing protocols that could help protect the mental health of our healthcare workers? As a frontliner, as a respiratory physician who's worked through the pandemic, I had a sense that there would be, you know, significant issues because I could see that everyone around me was experiencing them. I was experiencing them. You know, I couldn't sleep at night. I was so stressed. And, and because I'm married to another frontliner, that intense anxiety at the start, thinking, waking up every day thinking, oh gosh, this really is happening. You know, so I had a sense, yes, that this is what we would find. But to this magnitude, to this scale, this prevalence, absolutely not. And I certainly didn't expect that we would actually get this phenomenal response rate from across the board. I've never run a survey where people have actually said, please, can I take it? You know, I've never had that response. So I, I, I was overwhelmed by the fact that so many people wanted to share and wanted to be considered a frontliner. And it has been an absolute honor and a privilege to do this work. I mean, this is the once in a lifetime type of research. I mean, most of my research is in severe lung disease and people with COPD. This is not my core business. This is, this is something that I just felt that I had to do and, you know, did with Karen. But from our perspective, we feel deeply privileged to have done this. We, we're the custodians of an incredibly rich data set. And we really you know, are working extremely hard to give this voice to these people, to get this data out there, to get it published, um, to bring about change. This wasn't, we never did this study for the purpose of you know, trying to find out what was going on. Let's have a look at prevalence. We've, we've done this research and we'll continue to do this research to bring about change because we strongly believe the system must change. We must support and care for people who work, you know, in the health professions because of the work they do. We, we have to bring about change. But I suppose my, my final point would be my deep gratitude to the 10,000 odd people who had the kindness and patience to take a very long survey. So thank you to all of them. Associate Professor Natasha Smallwood and Professor Karen Willis sharing their findings from the hugely important Australian Frontline Healthcare Worker Study. And from the Limbic, I'm Sonali Silva. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you'll join me on the next podcast.